Strange Stories UK here again for Series 4, Episode 3. I'm continuing with the series of uh, Canning Town, London, Organised Crime and Corruption. So, this is continuing from Part 2. I'll go straight into it. David Hunt was trying to track down Jimmy Holmes and was advised by a family friend, Paul Kavanagh, that he could track him down. Kavanagh, who was said to specialise in insurance fraud, had access to credit databases and said he could find out where Holmes was staying. Hunt agreed to pay a weekly fee of £200 plus expenses to track down Holmes. Kavanagh asked to borrow a car and Hunt directed him to Palmer's Motors, a business he had recently bought for £160,000 and which was suspected of being used to launder the proceeds of crime, money laundering. Paul Kavanagh, then aged 45 and a convicted fraudster, had been involved in several failed business ventures with Hunt's brother Raymond and had fostered a friendship with Hunt while watching West Ham play at Upton Park. He thought of himself as a family friend to the Hunts. Kavanagh was paid by Hunt and uh, lent a Land Rover car from the car showrooms that Hunt had an interest in in Chigwell in Essex. Paul Kavanagh made a series of poor decisions. He was trying to pull off an insurance fraud, but needed £10,000 to pay off a bent insurance broker. This seemed doomed to failure. As he had no money, Kavanagh sold the Land Rover that David Hunt had lent him, and he ran off and hid when the deal that he was trying to organise went wrong. As he abused Hunt's Uh, He must have realised that he was asking for trouble, as Hunt never wanted to show any weakness against anyone who cheated him. When Kavanagh finally met up with Hunt at Palmer's Motors showroom in November 1997, David Hunt said, What'd you do it to me for, Paul, mate? Kavanagh tried to apologise, but Hunt said, Sorry's not good enough, mate. Kavanagh explained that he needed the money and would pay him back. There was, this was normal conversation. Then Hunt said, I gave you my word I weren't going to hurt you, but you've left me no choice, have you? Kavanagh said Hunt thought that I'd done him down bad, and if I got away with it, it would set a precedent for other people to try to do the same. So Kavanagh thought I'll get a good hiding. He said David Hunt piled into him with right-handers. He stopped after five or six punches. Then he suddenly turned round to an associate and said, Give me a knife. Then Hunt striped Kavanagh on his throat. Kavanagh was given a tea towel which he held against the flapping six-inch gash on the left side of his face. He was driven to Whips Cross University Hospital in Waltham Forest, north-east London, where he was dumped. Kavanagh said, they just left me there. There was blood everywhere. The next thing I knew, doctors were everywhere. I drifted in and out of oblivion. And that's when the doctor said that I'd died twice. After a blood transfusion, 
A plastic surgeon stitched his face. He had 50 stitches. The policeman Ray Ahern was listed in the secret police Tiberius report as being corrupted by the Hunt organised crime gang. The police reports are not always correct, and this may not be true. However, Ray Ahern was part of Operation Blackjack that in 1996 was targeting the Hunt OCG. Blackjack had been set up by D.S. Robertson, who brought Ahern in onto the team. A secret police report had concerns about a quarter of the detectives and their dealings with the Hunt OCG. Jimmy Holmes had given some information to Blackjack. The Hunt OCG had bought the freehold for Palmer's Motors in Chigwell in August 1996. The showroom was 51 to 53 Chigwell Road. It's a tile shop now. Hunt's friend Michael Palmer fronted the business and Operation Blackjack discovered that £300,000 of high quality cars were on sale. Police investigations found that the money could not be accounted for when they were analysing David Hunt's tax returns. The plot spoiler here. David Hunt doesn't pay tax. He employs bent accountants to make sure he doesn't have to. Palmer's Motors was being bugged by the police and there was a covert camera that had been installed. This recorded the attack on Paul Kavanagh in November 1997. It appears that the assault was ignored by the police at the time, as their job was to maintain the surveillance. The Blackjack team were anxious to arrest David Hunt on a charge. They did manage to arrest Paul Kavanagh for a fraud case, and pressure was brought to bear to make him testify against David Hunt. Kavanagh thought they would only give him more trouble, and he refused, and partly as a result he was sent down for fraud for three years. The police suspected David Hunt of several crimes, but they could not gather enough the required evidence to charge him. Witnesses were too scared to talk to the police. For example, Peter Wilson was a Daily Mirror journalist who was working on an article concerning the unsolved murder of Terry Gooderham and Maxine Arnold. There was a racket being run by the Hunt team, a pub protection racket. Pubs would be taken over if they owed the OCG money or if they just were threatened. Although it was unsure why Terry Gooderham and Maxine Arnold were murdered, I will cover this in a later podcast, many people are quite sure that the Hunt OCG were involved. Peter Wilson, the journalist, who was a crime reporter for the Sunday Mirror, had been briefed by Detective Superintendent Bill Peters, the senior detective in charge of the murderer, who strongly suspect the murder of uh, Terry Gooderham and Maxine Arnold, that is, who strongly suspected that the Hunt OCG were involved, as they had an informant who told the police the story. Wilson called at Hunt's house in Ryan Road at Epping with a photographer, Chris Taylor, on the 19th of March, 1992. They were told that Hunt wasn't home. Actually, he was at home listening to the conversation. Wilson was invited in for a cup of tea by Tina Hunt, who asked him why he had called. 
He explained that he was a journalist and looking into the murder of two people and wished to ask her husband some background questions. She said he'll be back later and Mr Wilson told her that he would return and he left his Sunday Mirror business card with his name and phone number. When he returned later, he asked Chris Taylor to turn the car around in a cul-de-sac where the Hunts lived and to keep the engine running in case they needed to make a quick escape. After he rang the entry phone at the entrance to the property, he saw David Hunt walking quickly towards him, looking furious. Hunt grabbed Wilson by both lapels of his coat and headbutted him, fracturing his eye socket, saying, You fucking C-U-N-T. I'll up you talking to my wife about fucking murder. Wilson went to Epping Police Station to report the assault and to make a statement. Wilson had a swollen face and stitches in his eyebrow and a closed eye. But he was advised by others to drop his complaint if he valued his personal safety. However, the police were keen for him to pursue the complaint. But he had now made a personal decision not to do so. David Hunt later excused his behaviour, arguing that his wife had been at home with his children and that she had told him that someone had been asking about a serious crime, local murder. He thought that it was unfair to involve women and children. Apparently those involved in the criminal world never go anywhere with the family or the family home. It's just a no-no. You don't touch or refer to the family. Well, that was Hunt's defence for his actions. The assault on the mirrored journalist Wilson was later considered by Judge Justice Simon, who, although not trying Hunt for the assault, uh, it came up in other evidence, which led to the judge commenting, I'm quite clear that Mr Wilson's evidence of an assault was a truthful account, and that the claimant's denial, David Hunt's denial, was knowingly untruthful. Although the claimant, Hunt, came across as a mild manner and courteous, this part of the case showed that he could not be relied upon as a witness of the truth, and he was capable of sudden violence when his interests were directly threatened, and he was not frightened to take on a journalist, notwithstanding the possible consequences. Given the difficulties of obtaining a witness against Hunt, the police had leverage on Kavanagh, and thought the attack on him was the best chance they had to lock him up. David Hunt thought that Paul Kavanagh was a loose end that could cause him problems. It seemed that he was planning something nasty for him. A mutual friend of Kavanagh and Hunt, Mark Wright, who's listed in the Tiberius secret police report as being a member of Hunt's OCG, Mark Wright is the father figure that appears in the reality TV programme called The Only Way is Essex, or TOWIE as it's known, where it's hinted that Mark Wright is connected with the Essex underworld to give some edge to the show. Mark Wright was connected to the Hunt OCG, but wasn't really a dangerous character, more of a slippery businessman with a golden tongue. The police report deconstructs what they refer to as organised corruption methodology. This is when the main member of a network will not generally deal with the corrupted officer directly. In most cases there will be an associate 
who is tasked to seek the information on behalf of the crime gang. This is called the conduit, and this was the job of Mark Wright. It's also said that the uh, the syndicate will employ sterile corridors, meaning that only the conduit will know who the corrupted officer is, and often the corrupted officer will not know who the final customer is, otherwise he may fail to carry out the corrupt act. This also prevents the organisation, or the crime organisations, getting the reputation of working with the police. There is still distrust and distaste towards corrupt police officers, even from the criminals themselves. It's thought that the Hunt Syndicate used Mark Wright and uh, Detective Sergeant Ray Ahern as their conduit. Mark Wright visited Kavanagh in prison during April 1999 and told him bad news. David Hunt was going to make an example of him for the disrespect that uh, Kavanagh had shown towards Hunt. Also, Kavanagh's girlfriend had taken up with another man. Kavanagh was said to feel that he was going to have to make a statement against David Hunt. On the 23rd of April 1999, Kavanagh made a statement to Detective Inspector Tim Smales, claiming that David Hunt was the man who slashed his throat. However, Kavanagh also sent a message to David Hunt, through Wright, saying that Kavanagh would withdraw his statement if he was paid a sum of money so he could buy a fake passport and disappear. As Operation Blackjack were monitoring Kavanagh's prison calls and bugging Hunt's phone, they were being kept informed of developments. Smells had arranged for forensics to examine Palmer's car showroom and Kavanagh's blood was found on a chair leg. A retired police officer, a Derek Keane, was also charged with conspiring to pervert the course of justice as he was trying to find out information to feed back to David Hunt about police movements and intentions. David Hunt was arrested and on remand while Operation Blackjack were trying to seize his assets under the new law, the 1995 Proceeds of Crime Act. Records show that Hunt had received £300,000 from the Soho property at Green's Court in Soho over the past three years. Not bad, £100,000 a year for a property that was only bought for 200000 The police were trying to bring another charge of living off immoral earnings against Hunt. To do this, they had to access the offshore records of the Gallons Reach Company. They believed that these documents could be found in the offices of his bent accountant in Jersey, along with proof of money laundering. They were able to show that the Hunt's Iron and Steel Scrap Company had avoided paying £150,000 in UK business taxes. And also the business was stripped of assets to put into, so the business could be put into administration, only to rename itself as a different company and shed any debts that it may have had. So in effect becoming a Phoenix company. Hunt had been cheating the Inland Revenue since 1982 to avoid paying tax. But the tax office, when they investigated this, rolled over and accepted a back payment of just £30,000, 
proving that criminal behaviour does pay. The Kavanagh problem was solved. He was paid off with £50,000 and this allowed David Hunt to be released from remand after all the charges were dropped. Kavanagh later said that he was afraid that once he had given his evidence, after six months or so, witness protection would abandon him and he would be penniless and worried whether or not he was going to be killed. Kavanagh was right to be worried. Hunt had served nine months prison time at Belmarsh Prison on his account and he was not happy. It was said that Hunt wanted him seriously hurt before he left prison in November 1999 but Kavanagh was keeping well out of the way. When Hunt was released from prison, Jimmy Holmes returned to California. There were now reports that a group of Canningtown criminals, which would have included the Hunt OCG and the Bowers OCG, were getting information from corrupt police. The Tiberius report claimed that Operation Blackjack had been corrupted from the top, which would have meant that Ahern was corrupt. The police had set up Ghost Squad to try to counter corruption allegations. Trusted detectives were recruited as sleepers and posted to suspect police stations and specialist squads to identify corrupt activity or so-called lone wolf corrupt police. After the death of Stephen Lawrence, well, this is another huge but very well-covered story, the investigation which the Commissioner Paul Condon knew was ruined by Bent Police, it was announced that there was to be a new squad of untouchable police to investigate the estimated 250 Bent Metropolitan Police officers. As Michael Gillard said, the author of Legacy, the BBC wanted to believe that the problem of corrupt police was at last being tackled, when in fact corruption continued to be cover up covered up with the help of the BBC reporting that the problem of police corruption had now been addressed. It seemed that dodgy dealings within the police weren't restricted to the OCGs. Smaller operations also seemed to have friendly police helping them. For example, Terry Sabine was a drug dealer, especially in ecstasy, and he ran the car valeting services on, in Silvertown. The police had him under surveillance for some time. They bugged his porter cabin. Where there was a wealth of stories about conversations on his sex chat phone lines, which the listening police found most amusing. Anyhow, Sabine's police files went missing. And there was a warning put out by the police chiefs, put them back or else there's going to be trouble. They were returned. Sabine was well known in Canning Town. He was a former sniper and friends with the Bowers and the Hunt OCGs. Lenny Naylor was Sabine's partner who was murdered after his release from prison in 2001. He had been charged with attempted murder, but those attacked did not press charges. It seemed that they were going to sort the matter out their own way. Naylor was a drug dealer and a taxi driver, and he was shot in his drive at Eistead Road near Gravesend in Kent. A white Bedford rascal van used in the shooting was found burnt out about a mile away. It was a cold case review 16 years later when Terence Barry, also known as Richardson, was jailed 18 years for the murder. It was thought that the dispute had been about supplying ecstasy tablets in the Essex area.
The Secret Tiberius Report described the David Hunt OCG as a criminal enterprise being hidden behind the legitimate business enterprise of scrap metal. It listed the main activities as being the importation of Class A drugs, protection rackets and high-value car crime. The report continued that the Hunt OCG had been successful as witnesses were too frightened to testify against them and there had been corrupt police helping them and advising the group. The report named those retired and current police helping the OCG. Those named helping the Hunt group were DC John Mitchell, Ray O'Hearn, the former DS, and Jim Dean, a former DCI, and Gavin Robertson, a former DCS. The former DS Ray O'Hearn was the main source of their information for the Hunt Group, and the report said that it should be noticed that O'Hearn also ran an annual golf trip to the United States, and that the membership of the uh, trip to the United States read like a who's who of both serving and former corrupt policemen, providing further opportunities for networking. It should be noted here that Ray O'Hearn retired in August 2001 and was unaware that he had been suspected of corruption. The police later said that the Tiberius report had been based on hearsay and may not have been reliable. But the report continued that the retired officers were always linked to the police through leaving dues, Freemasonry, sports clubs and private investigations when criminals can often become clients. The Tiberius report was concerned with the activities of a former flying squad officer, Derek Keane, who had contacts with the Clerkenwell, the Adams family, the Hunt and the Palmer um, OCGs. Keane had been friends with the father of Leah Betts, who had died after taking ecstasy tablet. Keane was wanting to take out those responsible. It had always been suggested that there was a Canning Town link to the shooting of the Essex boys. I'll make some considerations on this in another podcast, but the story has been very well covered elsewhere. It's interesting to note that Tucker and Tate had been members of the inner city West Ham football hooligan gang, and they knew David Hunt as they were regulars at the Epping Forest Country Club, where they would network for their drug deals. The splash night pool parties being particularly popular with Tucker. I have a newspaper cutting dated February the 20th, 2017 from the Times newspaper, reporting that a crime boss was offering to take out those three drug dealers responsible for the ecstasy pill that killed Leah Betts and brought so much heat on the Essex drug scene. As said, I'll cover this in a later podcast even though the story is so well known. Darren Pearman was murdered at the Epping Forest Country Club in 1999. He was a member of the Canning Town firm, and he all part of the same group of people at the inner city firms which centred on the West Ham football club gang. They were all very violent. If somebody crossed them, they could be murdered. The Canning Town firm refused to cooperate with the police, They said that they would sort it out themselves. It was thought that the Hunt OCG had an interest in the Epping Forest Country Club. The club had a reputation in the 1990s 
and was popular with sports personalities, especially West Ham footballers, showbiz types, soap stars such as Sid Owen and Daniela Westbrook, Page Three Girls and the Essex Underworld. The club was owned by Peter Pomfret, who was described as a local property developer who had good contacts. However, when running the club, Pomfret knew the criminal types who attended his club and who were importing drugs through the Essex coastline. Kevin Camp ran the security at the Epping Forest Country Club through his company Top Guard Security. He employed police officers Julian Connor and Simon Pinchbeck as door staff. They were moonlighting from their day job as policemen. They must have mixed with criminals while working, and police investigations showed that Julian Connor had been making inquiries into the Lee Manning stabbings at the Epping Club, more of which later. The shooting of the Essex boys, who were regulars at the club, that was Tucker, Tate and Rolf, in December 1995, still causes a lot of debate over who put up the contracts to kill them, and did the police protect those responsible by blaming and convicting Steele and Wombs. Wombs was almost certainly innocent of being directly involved, and Steele was almost certainly not the hitman, but they were found guilty by the jury on the strength of one particular police informant, who was not a credible witness, Darren Nichols. However, more of that later, if we start examining that case now, we'll go off on a huge tangent. The violence at the Epping Club had been running out of control, and Pomfret had been in contact with David Hunt, who had become a silent partner in the club, and it was thought that Hunt wanted the club for himself. The club was eventually closed in 2002, and Hunt acquired the property and the surrounding golf course during August 2005 and renamed it the Wollstone Manor Golf and Country Club. This was a time when the Newham Crime Squad had been targeting the Canning Town Cartel, and the Hunt OCG in particular. But they were running into difficulties due to corrupt police blocking their investigations. It seemed that the Regional Asset Recovery Team, the RART, who wanted to take proceeds of crime money from serious criminals, was also being blocked. David Hunt's Jersey accountant, uh, Peter Michel, was jailed for six years for money laundering for the Hunt OCG. He took the punishment of jail because he was terrified of the Hunt OCG. It was in 2004 that Jimmy Holmes published his book, Judas Pig. It was supposedly fiction but told much of the early story of the Hunt OCG. Some names being changed. Those that were dead had their actual names used. The book was an attempt by Holmes to set the record straight. Holmes described the book sarcastically as a love letter from me to him. Anyhow, I may do a, a separate podcast on the book and the other book that he published called The Charity Commission, when I will summarise sections of the book and try to make links with what the actual story was. In Gillard's book Legacy, there's a quote from the film The Long Good Friday. The film was released in 1980 and was about a crime boss who had control of bent police and politicians. 
the crime boss dominates the area of London Docklands which he wants to redevelop, ahead of a fictional Olympic Games. The crime boss, played by the actor Bob Hoskins, tries to legitimise his business interests and he dreams of linking up with a mafia in the uh, United States of America. Gillard suggested that life was imitating art as the rise of the uh, Canning Town Cartel and David Hunt and his OCG, amongst others, seemed to mirror the plot of the film, even though this was 30 years later. But fortunately for the Canning Town Cartel, they did not have the IRA to contend with. By 2008, David Hunt did not like any suggestions that he was a crime boss, as he now considered himself as a legitimate businessman. But at this time, the serious organised crime agency, Soccer, had Hunt under their surveillance. This was Operation Deluxe. And they had him linked to drug importations and money laundering. Soccer did a risk assessment for the Olympic Games due to be held in the UK in 2012. And they concluded that the Games would present serious organised criminals with a range of money-making opportunities. There would be many lucrative contracts for construction, services and sponsorship, and this would present criminals who will try to corrupt and extort money from those involved. Two bodies were created to organise for the Games, the London Organising Committee for the Olympic and Paralympic Games, that was LOCOG, this was under the... Uh, Lord Sebastian Coe's leadership, and the Olympic Delivery Authority, the ODA, which oversaw the construction of the venues. The Canning Town area within the borough of Newham uh, was a contaminated post-industrial area which needed transforming. David Hunt had formed the joint venture be uh, between his waste management plant and a leading demonition company called Keltbury. Keltbray. Say. Kelt Bray was an influential company having demolished sites in London for the Gherkin and the Shard skyscrapers and the Millennium Dome and the Emirates Football Stadium, Arsenal. Kelt Bray had been given the demolition work required to build the Olympic Park Stadium in Stratford. David Hunt's waste plant would handle the spoil. Barges would take the waste. Hunt had acquired the jetty at the end of the lane which housed the waste plant. Hunt had set up a company using the bent accountant Peter Michel, who set up an offshore company to hold the lease and charge whatever they wanted to make sure Hunt's company never made a profit, and so he would not have to pay tax. David Hunt, who owned the offshore company, could hide his identity behind the bent company. Massac Fonseca, who were based in Panama, oversaw it. But the reason that we know this was because the release of the Fonseca papers, which showed how companies avoided paying tax and they laundered money. There's a film, I think, on Netflix at the moment called The Laundromat that uh, explains the story. Soka investigated the Hunt businesses with the other businesses that had OCG links and had previous dealings with the Hunt OCG group. And although this did not apply to Count Bray, who were just guilty of not carrying out due diligence when partnering up with Hunt and forming Count Bray Hunt Limited. 
Count Bray Hunt secured another Olympic contract to clear the site for the Olympic Village, where the competitors would stay during the Games. The contract was to remove waste and return it recycled to the site of Westfield City Shopping Centre that was also being constructed. It seemed that David Hunt was being accepted now by Big Business and the City of London and that were part of the Olympic Working Partnership. David Hunt had reinvented himself and wanted to put a distance between his, himself and his criminal past. This has not been successful. If you Google David Hunt, about 20 David Hunts come up on Google, as it's quite a common name. Um, David Hunt is the one referred to as David Hunt Gangster. Money was invested in the Walston Manor Golf and Country Club after a mysterious fire gutted the listed manor. The club was now targeting families and weddings. David Hunt was also buying up pubs and bars in Essex. Soka raided Walston Manor on the 29th of June 2010, along with other businesses looking for paperwork to prove that money was being laundered and tax was being evaded. David Hunt was now an influential figure in Essex and would, had made powerful friends and influential neighbours, some of who were celebrities and some of these had contacts within the Essex Police Force and even those working for Soka, or Soka. This caused complications, problems and the allegations of corruption, especially for those working in Soka, which were rebranded as the National Crime Agency in October 2013. So Soka became the National Crime Agency. Walston Manor was proving a popular location and became one of the venues for the reality TV The Only Way is Essex. The Sugar Hut was another venue for the TV programme, which again David Hunt was thought to have invested in. Just like Walston Manor, the Sugar Hut was rebuilt after a mysterious fire in 2009, and it reopened just in time for the Only Wears Essex TV programme that started in 2010. The police were keeping under surveillance the Wright family. Mark Wright Senior was listed as a member of the Hunt OCG, as we've already mentioned. He was a former partner of Stephen Hunt in the car showroom business at Womford in Essex. And as already mentioned, the gangster connections were part of Mark Wright's persona for Towie, where he was said to be the Towie, the only way as Essex godfather, who was part of the Essex underworld. Someone that you should not cross. The police had gathered intelligence on Mark Wright and his three brothers, Eddie Wright, George Wright and Jason Wright, and their links with the Hunt OCG. Mark and Eddie Wright were listed as police informants, registered to uh, DS Ray Ahern. Neither brother was aware that the other brother was an informant. This is such a confused situation. There are a number of reasons why people talk to the police. For example, to give themselves protection, as revenge, to take out the opposition, even to try to ascertain what the police actually know about the matter. It's not known why Wright or the Wright brothers had become listed informants uh, by Ray O'Hearn. 
The Tiberius report had Araya Hearn as a suspected police officer, a corrupt officer, and thought that Mark Wright was giving snippets of information about the Hunt OCG to the police, but was also passing back information about the police's intentions, what they were up to. The anti-corruption squad suspected that Mark Wright was a corrupter of police officers. He was uh, paying and playing his police contacts. The Sugar Hut was run by Michael Norcross, who had bought the club from a former business partner, after which there had been a big falling out. It was thought that Norcross had tried to get help to sort out his problem that may have involved OCGs. Much of Michael Norcross's funding came from a Dubai-based company. This formed a tangled web. It was thought that the company was owned by partly by British-based OCGs, including the Canning Town Cartel. Michael Norcross was found hung in his house during January 2021. The coroner concluded that Mick took his own life on the balance of probability, as he had large money problems. The Sunday Times published an article in May 2010 naming David Hunt as a leading organised crime figure, which blew Hunt's legitimate business claims out of the water. Hunt sued the newspaper but lost his case, after which the uh, previous business people distanced themselves from David Hunt. I first became aware of the story when I read the Sunday Times magazine article in July, on July to the 14th, 2019. I was on holiday at the time and bought the International Times newspaper. The article is written by Michael Gillard and opens with a quote from the film The Long Good Friday. The article arguing that the crime lord David Hunt made his fortune from the 2012 Olympics and was seen as untouchable until he was exposed by the Sunday Times. The article is a four-page expose, which is a long advert for the book that was published by uh, the name Legacy, Gangsters, Corruption and the London Olympics. It appears that David Hunt is an important OCG in East London and Essex and part of the Canning Town Cartel. He owns a a portfolio of companies and businesses and uh, has money invested in offshore uh, companies in Jersey, Dubai and Panama. In the late 1990s a real effort was made to catch the Hunt OCG but police corruption destroyed the careers of the police that tried. Real efforts were again made in 2005-2006 which resulted in contracts to kill the police officers involved. Eventually that team of officers, the Newham Crime Squad, were forced off the case by corrupt police officers working for the Hunt OCG. The background to this being the corrupt police preventing police investigations into murders and other actions of the OCGs in the London area. During 2014, the National Crime Agency discovered that two of its officers were leaking sensitive information. Sheila Roberts and Brian Adair, who lived together, were arrested and charged with uh, data protection offences. They were passing information to OCGs about intelligence reports and files of people under investigation. Ex-police superintendent Glyn Evans was also accused of data protection crimes. On the 25th of May 2014, 
Michael Gillard and Carl Felstrom published the story in the Sunday Times newspaper about police officers under investigation and their links to gangsters. The singer Rod Stewart, who lived nearby and knew most of those involved, was also included in the story to give it a bit of stardust, although he had nothing to do with it. Alan Sewell, the Essex car dealer, who Rod Stewart referred to in a television interview a couple of years ago as his best mate, was also involved. It was Alan Sewell who sold Hunt his country mansion in the same complicated deal organised to avoid paying any tax on the sale. Alan Sewell uh, managed the Vagabonds Stewart celebrity football team, although through which he is understood to have befriended serving and retired police officers. Sewell had links with the Canning Town cartel, and in particular David Hunt. I'm not sure how this scam involves everybody, although it goes up to the Prime Minister's offices, as his aide Patrick Rock was also involved. So it's to be expected that whatever, whatever the scam was, it's going to be brushed under the carpet. Despite all the accusations, David Hunt has never been in jail other than on remand. So, all in all, he's been very successful. Anyhow, this podcast is just one of a series about the Canning Town cartel of organised crime groups. The next podcast will examine some murders that have uh, been unsolved or unsatisfactorily solved. That is, questions are still being asked about them and uh, they are possibly linked to the Canning Town cartel. So that's all for today's podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening to it. I'd like to thank Damselfly for supplying the background music. And until next time, I'll say goodbye and thank you. <laughs>